are going to begin a new series uh, for the next five weeks, five weeks including today, on the topic of revival, on the topic of revival. How many of you know what revival is? And how many of you know what, that you want to see it if you know what it is? Yeah. And so this morning, I have the privilege of kind of um, introducing the foreword to the book that we are about to enter for the next, next month. And I'm excited to do that. I believe that God has spoken to me, put some stuff on my heart uh, to take us that direction. And so to begin this morning, we are actually going to read two lengthy passages of Scripture. We're going to actually go a little bit old school, because I know, you know, you can YouTube sermons, and you can get one scripture over 40 minutes. We're going to read 40 verses together. Hello. Because if, if at any rate, if you want to leave in the next 10 minutes, you heard 40 verses, you got your Bible reading in. And so, so to do that, let's go to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. I'm excited because I am just going to read directly from my Bible. Most of the time I've got like the scripture on my notes, but I'm going to read straight up from my Bible. I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard Version. When you're in John chapter 4, verse 6, say you're there. All right, say it again. All right, John chapter 4, verse 6. The context of this is that Jesus is leaving Judea, and he is heading to a region called Galilee. Galilee is in the north of Israel. But to go to Galilee, there's a region smack dab in the middle called Samaria. And the problem with that region is it was not a hood that the Israelites like to visit because there was enmity and strife and division between the Samaritans of Samaria and Israel. So what they would do when they're traveling to Galilee is they would take the long road purposely going all the way around the region just to avoid the people. But that's not Jesus. Jesus goes right into the heart of Samaria. And can you imagine the disciples when he's like, all right, let's go to Galilee, and they start to veer off road, and he's like, where are you going? And they're like, what do you mean where I'm going? I'm going the route. And he's like, no, 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 we're going right into the heart of the place that you like to avoid. Now, this was mutual. Samaritans didn't like Jews. Jews did not like Samaritans. It was a mutual agreement to disassociate and to avoid each other. But nevertheless, that's not Jesus. Jesus goes right into the heart. And in verse 6, he stops in a town called Sychar, which is a just small town in the region of Samaria. And it says in verse 5, I believe, that he's tired. So he stops at a well at around noon. And here we see the common story, most familiar story most of us would be familiar with, with the woman at the well. And so in verse 6, it says this, And Jacob's well was there. Jacob, that's the Jacob of Genesis. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now, the sixth hour was noon, approximately. So this is in the heat of the day. This is not the ideal time to go and get some water. And there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said, said to her, Give me a drink. That's kind of rude. You don't even know me. What do you mean, give me a drink? She's probably like, man, he is just typical man. <laughs> give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. I love how Jesus just sets people up. 
Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For once again, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? She doesn't know. You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water from this well is going to thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him shall never thirst. Now watch this. But the water that I'll give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me that water. I don't want to have to keep on going back to this well. Do you know that most people, I'm already preaching, most people don't like to go to the same well over and over again, thinking that it's going to satisfy again, but they don't know of any other well. So Jesus is like, I got another well. And she's like, give me that water. So I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here. Here's the setup. He said to her, go call your husband and have him come too. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said, yeah, yeah. You're correct when you said you've had no husband. Matter of fact, let me drop it down to you. You've had five. And the, the one you're with is not even your husband. And I love how she tries to like praise the rebuke. Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. <laughs> no duh. <laughs> Who says duh anymore? The woman, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And it goes on, uh, jump down for, just for the sake of time. It goes on in verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. At this point, his disciples came, and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman, yet no one said, what do you seek, or why do you speak with her? And this is so amazing. So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the man, come and see a man who told me all the things that I've done. This is not the Christ, is it? And they went out to the city, and they were coming to him. Now drop down to verse 39. This is the fruit of that encounter. From that city... Many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I've done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, God, this is so beautiful. It's no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Man, that's some good, good reading. Now go with me to Mark chapter 5. We're halfway there, guys. Mark chapter 5. Pity the church that can't read a lot of verses in the Bible. Mark chapter 5, verse 21. Context is, Jesus has gone on a short-term mission trip to the region called the Gerasenes to heal a demon-possessed man. And he has his disciples go through a storm to get over that side. He sets this man free. And then he's like, all right, let's get back in the boat, go, go to the other side. And upon getting to the other side, we see this next story. Matthew 5, 21, if you're there, say, I'm there. I'm there. 
When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him, and so he stayed by the seashore. And one of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up and on seeing him fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And he went off with him, and a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. And a woman who had had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak, for she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. Immediately the flow of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing in on you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearfully, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. While he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official. Or actually, while he was still speaking, they, that's servants, came from the house of the synagogue official saying, your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? Does anybody realize that Jairus, Jairus was probably instantaneously angry at the woman with the issue of blood for interrupting Jesus coming to his house? Because at the time that he dropped to his knees in front of him, she was dying. She wasn't dead yet. And then he gets a distraction called a woman with an issue of blood that takes his time. I don't know. I'm just putting myself in those shoes. I would have been like, um, are you serious? So you get healed, but my daughter doesn't? We can have the same attitude. So he goes on. While he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official saying, your daughter's died, why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, do not be afraid any longer, only believe. And watch this. He allowed no one to accompany him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the synagogue official, and he saw a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing, and he entered in, and he said to them, why the commotion? Why the weeping? The child has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing. Wow. But he put them all out. Sometimes we just need to remove the doubters from the room. That can, that can actually stifle what the Holy Spirit does. He said, I'm going to need you all to go. So he puts them out. He took along the child's father and mother and his own companions, entered the room where the child was, taking the child by the hand. He said to her, Talitha kum, which translated means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl got up, began to walk, for she was 12 years old, and immediately they were completely astounded. That's some good reading right there. So this morning, I want to talk on this topic ripe for revival, ripe for revival. What I want to do is I want to examine what are the conditions 
that need to be in place in a culture, in a church, or more specifically, in a person for them to be ripe for revival. You on the same page? If you're with me, say amen. amen. All right, let's pray. Jesus, we welcome you into this place. Holy Spirit, uh, we don't just need you, we want you. We want you. And so, Lord, when we invite you into the room, we really do ask you to walk into the room and to open up our ears, to open up our eyes, most importantly, to open up our hearts to begin to transform us from the inside out. And that we would be as astounded at what you do in us as they were when Jairus' daughter was raised from the dead. In Jesus' name, amen. What does the word ripe mean? What does the word ripe mean? More importantly, what does ripe for revival mean? Well, ripe, by definition, is a word that speaks of when something, watch this, is ready to be tasted. When something is ready to be tasted. We all know when fruit is ripe or not. For example, have you ever eaten a green banana? Ain't ripe yet. Okay? My dad said it's love them. You're weird. Um, <laughs> ain't ripe yet. You know when fruit isn't ripe yet. Ripe by defini definition means that, that it is in a position ready to be tasted. Another definition for the word ripe is this. It is the, uh, the timing that is fitting for a season. It, it's, the, it's the arrival of something that is fitting to an appropriate season. Okay, now we've, we have experienced on a lot of scales uh, when something is ripe or not. Consider the, the maturation and development of your children. Two years ago, all right, last year, uh, Zeke, for example, he saw his older brother and older sister start to ride a bike so naturally, he's got a fear of missing out, and he wants to start to ride a bike. But the season wasn't ripe for it. And here's why. Because when we got him on the bike, I, I bought, went out, bought training wheels, I put them on the bike. When he got onto the bike and he started to pedal, guess what? He could not keep those little feet on the pedal. He couldn't get over the part where it either goes back to the brake or forward. He couldn't do it. And so all it caused was perpetual frustration in his little heart and anger. Right. He just wasn't right to ride the bike. Okay? The, it wasn't the appropriate time. Now this year, he's got a little bit more coordination and he's he's putting more and more one in front of the other. Okay? So we're we're getting closer to the right time. All right? When Jesus Jesus kind of talked about this timing in John chapter 4 verse 35 that the fields were right or white Unto harvest. What he was saying was that the fields were ripe for reaping. It was a time, it was the right season to reap. So listen to me this morning. If ripe has something to do with being ready be, to be tasted and the timing to be right, then what are the conditions that a culture needs to be in, a church needs to be, be in, more specifically, you and I need to be in um, 
to be ready or ripe to taste revival. Well, first and foremost, we need to kind of understand what revival really is. When you think about revival, what do you think about? Tell me. Who can tell me? When you think about revival, what do you think about? Something changing. That's good. Anybody else? Huh? Good preaching. So we're at revival right now. Can I get an amen? I'm good. <laughs> yes. Something being restored. Mm, that's good. Yes. Miracles. Anybody else? Breakthrough. Who said it? Hungry. Hungry. That's good. So we need to understand what revival James. Yeah, I would say coming alive. Coming alive. So good. See. If you've been in church for a while, then you, you kind of have a little bit of an understanding about rev what revival is. Is about There's a lot, depending upon what you grew up in or what you're familiar in, that has been said about revival. Depending upon the Christian camper circle, right, um, that you've been experienced or been a part of, revival can mean a lot of different things. For some, revival can be a special church service uh, that is scheduled in advance. Come to the revival service. We want to designate this service to be revival. Right? I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying that revival in different camps means a lot of different things. So you schedule out in advance and you really promote, like, come to this revival service. Um, for some people, revival can be a special uh, church service um, or it can be a special week. For others, people would say that revival is the lifestyle that every Christian should, should, should walk in. Uh, for some denominations, revival can only be limited to mass conversion of souls. For others, revival is the gift of the Holy Spirit, the display of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. If you grew up in Pentecostal or charismatic circles, um, then you probably were more familiar with what we call revival. That was a lot of the culture. Pentecostal and charismatic circles, revival is uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's people speaking in tongues. It's people crying, laughing, weeping, jumping, shouting, lively worship, people running around with flags. I've, I've heard in some Pentecostal circles, people putting lampshades on their head and taking laps around the sanctuary because the glory of God has illuminated them. That's real. But you see that there's some nuance to what revival often looks like. So revival, I remember I was a part of what we would call like a revival service. It was a, a special night, and I remember we had a guest speaker, and he was preaching, and I came with my parents, and I'm like sixth or seventh grade, uh, and, and, and I ended up reading through the whole book of Revelation. Because that service was long. A lot of times when churches or people are in revival, the kids look, at, look back at it and say, that was just a time where we were in church and it was long. Long service. That was me in 6th, 7th grade. I read the whole book of Revelation in one service. I think it was like a prophet, night of prophetic ministry or presbytery or something like that. See, revival has been accompanied by what Scripture calls signs and wonders, miracles, unexplainable things, things that defy logic and reasoning. When I've been a part of 
revival moments. There have been things that have happened that you have no explanation for. But listen to me, though. Um, all of those things happen in revival. Those are attributes often associated with revival, but that's not necessarily the core of what revival is. If we need to know what revival is, we need to get to the root of what revival is. All those things are the fruit, but let's talk about the root. Here is what I believe revival is. Now, I'm not saying that, that we need to not have those things because that is the atmosphere of revival. But at the root level, this is what revival is, and some of us alluded to it in our answers. Revival is a sovereign act of God to revive, renew, recharge, and refresh the soul and spirit of a person that is dead or dying, dry or dehydrated, or desperate. That's really what revival is. I want you to consider this. This may be a paradigm shift for you. Revival is for something that needs to be revived. That's why God does it. When you're in revival, you don't need revival. You are already alive. When, but when you aren't, that's when God wants to release it. See, it's, it's reviving. It's, listen to me, it's renewing, it's recharging, it's refreshing of the soul and spirit of a person that is dead or dying, dry or dehydrated, or desperate. This is what revival is. All the things that we are experiencing in the revival are fruits of what God is doing at the root of the soul. Revival is an awakening. It's an awakening of new or renewed passion for Jesus. Jonathan Edwards, a preacher in the first great awakening, called revival just that. He called it an awakening, which is the act of waking from sleep. See, if you feel like you are in need of revival, be encouraged by the fact that you are never too spiritually gone or too spiritually dead to be awakened by Jesus. That's why revival is amazing. You're never too far gone for God not to release revival to you. Revival is when God touches the soul and spirit of a person and gets their heart to start to beat for the first time or again with a new passion and a vigor for God. That's when, that's when I know that revival has come. Revival starts to infuse you with a new passion where you start to come alive and you're excited and you're, you, you, you are sitting on the edge of your seat because of expectation of what you believe that God will do. It's a, it's a coming alive. Revival, listen to me, will keep you up at night not because you're stressed out, not because you're worried, and not because you're anxious. It will keep you up at night because you are burning on fire for God. The reason why you're up is different. It's like what Jeremiah 29, 20 verse 9 said. Your word is like a fire shut up in my bones. Indeed, I can't hold it in. When you're in revival, you are on fire. 
Because God is an all-consuming fire. You can't experience the presence of God and not experience fire. It's part of his nature. And it causes you to burn. And it causes you to burn with passion. And what it also does is it burns all of the chaff out of your life. All the stuff that needs to be burned off. All of the baggage that you have put in your backpack because of what life has brought you begins to be consumed when you are on the altar and God is pouring out his fire on you. Revival comes to dead or dying, dry or dehydrated or desperate. That's where revival comes. For some people, revival is a resuscitation. Revival is God performing CPR on your soul. And this is what I love about revival. revival. Revival is what God does to keep you and I alive because listen to me, he will not let his bride die. Amen. He won't. When you look at the Old Testament, time and time again, the Israelites experience a revival, a reigniting, a reawakening in the driest, deadest, desperate, dehydrated moments because he would not let his people die. God is so good that he will pour out revival no matter what your condition is because he will not let you die. He won't. It is the way that he sustains and preserves his people. Revival is what God does because his people need to be revived. When you experience revival, you can't contain it. You can't. It's contagious because when you burn, the people around you burn. There is no revival without the need for reviving. So what that means is that in order for a person to be ripe or ready to experience revival, then they must be in need of reviving. They must be in need of renewing, recharging, refreshing. Let me, let me just say this. I, there is no shame in coming to the honest conclusion within yourself that you are in need of revival. Some people want to walk around and they say all the revival language and they are dead or dying, dry or dehydrated and desperate on the inside. And guess what? The reason why God releases revival is because he already knows what you won't admit. This is why revival is so good. Revival isn't just a one-time thing. Revival is something that we all need from time to time to put it into scriptural language. That's why the Bible says to continually be filled with the Spirit. Because every single time, it's another experience of revival. John Piper said this, speaking to the point I just said. He said, God is the giver of all spiritual life, but there are times when even those who have become born again and become part of God's kingdom from time to time drift into a kind of lifelessness and lethargy and backsliding and indifference and weakness. Billy Sunday said, when is revival needed? When carelessness and unconcern keep the people asleep. When carelessness and unconcern keep 
people asleep. And let me tell you where this message came from. It came from standing right there back in the middle of worship. Let me just, let me just tell you this, and I, I hate to go back to 2020, but we need to acknowledge what took place. Listen to you. I'm telling you last week in the middle of worship, the Holy Spirit gave me a picture of what the American church has become in the middle of 2020. I saw the church in a coma. I saw the church, a picture of the church in a hospital bed in a coma. And listen to me. She was breathing, but she wasn't awake. She was alive, but she wasn't active. One of the repercussions that we just need to acknowledge that may be an elephant in the room is that when you have to shut down the church, God's bride took a nap. It took a nap, and what set in in the nap was dormancy, inactivity, laziness, atrophy, and apathy, all to the joy of the enemy. All to the joy of the enemy. And what I saw Jesus do when he walked into the room was sit next to the hospital bed where the church was in a coma, and he looked at the enemy who was laughing, and he said, listen to me. She's not dead. She's just asleep. She's not dead. The American church is not dead. We just may be asleep. But just like we read in John and Mark, Jesus went up to that young girl and said, she's not dead. She's just asleep. Young girl, I say to you, arise. The reason why we are ripe for revival is because we're asleep. And let me just say it. Let me just say it. I'm going to be bold saying this, and you can have a conversation with me afterwards, but it's no accident that the world gets woke when the church is asleep. It's no accident. It's no accident. It is not an accident. Why? That is thriving in our culture. Because in 2020, the devil got what he wanted, and the culture was pushing, and fear was happening, and he was like, shh, just take a little nap. Just take a little nap. And we have a rising giant that is in a coma. But Jesus is sitting on the bed. And he's looking and he's saying, she's not dead. She's just asleep. And the reason why we need revival is because there needs to be a restoration of the sleeping giant. But what we need to understand is that those are the very conditions that make us ripe for revival. There is no losing in Jesus. There is no loss in Jesus. Listen to me. Those are the very conditions that make you ready to taste revival because revival is the reviving, renewing, recharging, and refreshing of the soul and spirit of a person that is dead or dying, dry or dehydrated or desperate. So if you feel dead or dying, you feel dry or dehydrated in your spiritual life and in your soul, or you even feel desperate in your soul, guess what? You are ripe for revival. 
Those are the conditions that God brings revival in. He doesn't. Can I tell you, the goal of revival is that you become revival. So if you're in it, you go become it. But at first, we got to have it. And I love Jesus because what we see is that no matter what our conditions are, in our worst moments, when we have no energy in our soul and spirit, that's actually the condition. That God says, you're a perfect candidate for me to pour out my revival on you. Awake, O sleeper, from the dead, so that Christ can shine on you. If I could have the worship team to come forward. See, these are the very conditions and the stories that we read or that we read at the beginning of the message. In Mark chapter 5, we see three people that are ripe for revival. Three people. The first is this. It's a man named Jairus. Jairus is ripe for revival. And here's why Jairus is ripe for revival, because Jairus is desperate. Jairus is a religious man, but guess what? Religion will not raise his daughter from the dead. Because religion in and of itself does not have the life in it to impart life. So here's Jairus at a desperate moment. Jairus is not like Nicodemus where he schedules a meeting in the middle of the night because the need is too urgent. He doesn't have the time for that. His daughter is dying. So, so Jairus comes into a crowd, and can you imagine the humility of the moment? It says he gets on his knees and he is begging Jesus. What about any other Pharisees that would have been around? The shock and awe of the moment. No. What if, what if Jairus had tutored some other synagogue leaders and they're like, our leader is at Jesus' feet? Because religion will not bring a dead life back to life. And so Jairus is desperate, and he gets on his knees, and he goes to the feet of Jesus, and he says, Jesus, I'm desperate, please please come and heal my daughter. Jairus is ripe for revival in that moment. And Jesus knew the condition of Jairus and his daughter. So Jesus begins to go into his home, and upon, in the moment, we see another interruption. Another woman that's ripe for revival. This woman is... A woman that has been hemorrhaging with blood for over 12 years. Listen, that in and of itself is a crazy thing to have to endure. But what about the weakness of her body? What about the weakness of her body? She's ripe for revival because she's desperate. What about how many times when she was fighting through the crowd around Jesus, 
where she wanted to give up because she didn't even have the natural energy to get to him. It was probably a crawl. Remember in the story, the disciples, when Jesus says, who touched me? They're like, who touched you? You have people all up on you. What do you mean who touched me? And he said, no, 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 no. Uh, I can identify, I can identify the desperate people in the crowd. I can identify the people who are ripe for revival in the crowd. Because just because you're around Jesus doesn't mean you're desperate for him to touch you. My God. So she's crawling and fighting. Let me tell you about the calculated risk that she took. She was bleeding, which means she was ceremonially and ritually unclean. And so she had the risk running that if she were to touch anybody else, she would make them unclean. And it didn't matter. When you're desperate, you don't care. Let me tell you what's amazing about being dead or dying, dry or dehydrated or desperate, is those are the very conditions that cultivate hunger and thirst and a longing for more. And if you've been in that season in your life, thank God that he put that inside of you for you you to say, God, there's got to be more. There's got to be more than what I'm experiencing. It's in the valley that you develop an appetite for the mountain. I love that God does that. Because you get to the end of yourself where you're just tired. Tired of just doing church. Tired of coming every single week and doing the same stuff over and over again. Expecting a different result. That's the definition of insanity. And I know that God is hearing this. We need revival. But the amazing thing of what God does is sometimes he gets you to a place of brokenness. Where he says, okay. I can pour it out now. Because then you will know it's not about you. It's not about what you fasted for. It's not about how many times you read your Bible. You were at a moment in your life where you could not do anything. And I still showed you how good I was by pouring out revival on you. So that woman was desperate. And we see the desperation in verse 24 through 26. How many times it said she had spent all of her money at the hands of doctors and she got worse. Yes, Lord. Woo. Woo. Sometimes we think we can't get any more desperate. Sometimes God will not release revival because you're not dead enough. Yes. My God. Why did he get interrupted by the woman with the issue of blood? Because maybe Jairus' daughter needed to be dead for her to experience revival. Amen. <sighs> so the woman with the issue of blood is desperate. And then we see the last one. She, Jairus' daughter, went from dying to dead. As if dying wasn't desperate enough. Jairus is angry. How did you let this woman interrupt you? She's probably angry at the crowd. My God, if you just get out of my way, Jesus could get to my house. The servants show up. Don't even bother the teacher anymore. It's over. And it's not. It's not because at that time... She was a perfect candidate to be ripe for revival because the condition 
was ready for it. And so what he does is he shows up at the bed and he says, get the haters out. Behold, whoo, behold, I'm doing a new thing. Do you not perceive it? Forget the old stuff. Forget it. I'm only going to let the people in the room that can believe that he can resurrect dead or dying, refresh dry or dehydrated, and turn desperate into passion. So he invites them in the room and he shows mom and dad. I don't even know if they got a pass or not. It doesn't matter. But they get into the room and he says, Talitha Kum, get up. I say to you, arise. And the last one, from John chapter 5, or John chapter 4, we see a woman at the well. And this one's a little bit tricky because sometimes you don't even know what exactly you see here. But listen to me. This woman was dehydrated. She was dehydrated. And it wasn't a natural thing. It was a spiritual thing. Because what we see paralleled in this passage of scripture was that water well, Jacob's well, was not the only well that she visited. She, she visited a husband well too. And she thought, it's not this husband, it's another husband that will satisfy my soul. And then it was another husband that sought to satisfy my soul. And then it was another husband that said, and then it was another husband. And Jesus had to tell her that what she was doing in the natural had been mirrored in the spiritual. And it, what the water in that well was not the problem. The problem was that you have been looking and longing. And, and, and let me tell you, this is not a natural thing. This is a spiritual thing. And let me tell you what you need. When I was talking to you about living water, it wasn't digging from this well. It was filling your soul and your spirit with a revival. Do you know the amazing thing about Jacob's well? Jacob's well was not spring-fed. It was a well that only collected water when the rain came. So that water was dry, static, stale. You know the difference between fresh water and water that has sat in a cup overnight. Drink, choose which one you want. And so she had went over and over and over again to Jacob's well, hoping that, man, if I get another pitcher of water, this one will quench my thirst. And that's why she asked Jesus, is, do you have a rope to get to the deeper part? Because she thought that if she could get deeper into the well, there's not enough alcohol, sex, drugs, money, that is a well that you'll go to that will satisfy your soul. And yet people go to the same well over and over and over and over again looking for a different result and they get tapped dry every time and they're still dehydrated. She comes to Jesus. She says, he says, give me a drink. And it's just a setup because I want to let you know there's another alternative. I can quench the thirst of your soul. I can satisfy that dehydrated soul that you've been looking for a man to quench, and you're now with another man thinking that it wasn't, it wasn't the man before, it's just I need another man, and that wasn't it. And here's how I know that she experienced revival. 
it says that she left her water pot. Because when you experience revival, you lose your thirst for other stuff. She came to get water, had a conversation with Jesus. She was dehydrated. He filled her with revival. And she was so consumed by the encounter that she had with Jesus, she forgot why she came to the well in the first place. My God. My God! And, and all of a sudden, guess what? She wasn't thirsty anymore. And the same thing, the same thing that Jesus said when the disciples came back to him and they said, aren't you hungry? And he said, guys, I've got food you don't even know of. The food is to do my will, the will of my Father. I, my appetite is full. That same thing happened to her in the conversation with Jesus. She came back to the city, left her water pot because she was no longer thirsty, and now she's spreading the message because she's so full of revival. She was thirsty and got it quenched. God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. I'm so, th I'm so thankful that 2020 got us to our knees. Because that was, that's what makes us right for revival. There was such a purging. Everything that could have been shaken was shaken. And it caused a desperation to say, God, there's got to be more. And I'm telling you, if you're in the room and you're struggling, he is at your bed. And he is saying, you're not dead, you're just asleep. And he wants to speak to you this morning. It's saying, young church, I say to you, arise. 56 years of history, I say you to arise. Don't look to the former stuff, but look to what I'm doing in this moment. She was so ripe. And y'all know I'm not a crier. But this is so real. Are you thirsty in your soul? Are you hungry in your spirit? Are you dead or dying? Dry or dehydrated? Are you desperate? You are ripe for revival. So if that's you, I just want to invite you to the forefront. Come on. If you're dead or dying, dry or dehydrated, desperate, I want you to, I want you to come to the front because we're going to go back into the spirit of the living God and we're going to believe that God meets you in your emptiness. God meets you in your hunger. God meets you in your thirst. You're dead or dying, dry or dehydrated, or desperate, you are ripe for revival. God, we ask you to come. Lord, we ask you to come. Father, I pray that you would birth a new hunger in your word. 
as Amos said, that people will wander to and fro, longing to hear the word of the Lord. Come, God, pour out your spirit. Jesus! Father, come, Lord. Come! Meet your people. Meet your people, God. When is enough enough?